Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash AQR. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Taiho Oncology Incorporated. Welcome to this Peer Voice panel discussion on colorectal cancer. This activity comprises three presentations featuring a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, everyone. Uh, I am Marwan Fakih from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in Duarte, California. Welcome to this activity titled Expert Lines of Thought and Sequencing Later Lines of Therapy in Advanced Colorectal Cancer. Joining me in the discussion are my two esteemed colleagues, uh, Dr. Tony Bikai Saab from the Mayo Clinic, Phoenix, Arizona, and Dr. Dustin Deming from the University of Wisconsin Carbone Cancer Center. Let's begin our discussion today with the first presentation titled, What's on the Line? Options and Opportunities to Improve Outcomes in Advanced Colorectal Cancer. So let me start by giving a brief overview of the initial treatment uh, for advanced metastatic colorectal cancer. Obviously, the first thing on our minds when we see patients with metastatic colorectal cancer uh, are the following. Is the patient curable? Can we perform surgery? Is the treatment for downstaging? What's the performance status? What are the goals of the patient? And obviously, what is the molecular typing of the tumor? So in this program, we will be focusing on patients with metastatic colorectal cancer, who are not candidate for, for uh, surgical intervention. In that particular setting, for patients with microsatellite instability, clearly the treatment is with immunotherapy, whether it's pembrolizumab or nivolumab, ipilimumab. Here we will be focusing more on patients with microsatellite-stable colorectal cancer. And over the last decade or more, we have been using combination chemotherapy in this setting whether it's doublet chemotherapy or triplet chemotherapy, uh, is debatable dependent on the performance status or the age of the patient. The most common treatment used is a combination of 5-FU oxaliplatin leucovorin, full FOX, in combination with bevacizumab, or 5-FU leucovorin arenotecad in combination with bevacizumab. And those treatments are typically for patients with right-sided colon cancer or with patients with left-sided colon cancer, and RAS mutation. In patients with RAS wild-type tumors with left-sided colon cancer, we typically initiate treatment with a doublet chemotherapy in combination with an anti-EGFR. So those are the most common first-line therapies in our patients. Now, obviously, at the time of progression, when we are considering a second-line treatment, we will proceed in those patients with the alternate treatment. Patients who had full FOX in the first line will proceed to full theory in the second line and vice versa. Patient who had anti-GFR in the first line will proceed to a bevacizumab-based therapy in the second line. And obviously, patients with RAS mutant tumors or patients who have right-sided colon cancer should continue with bevacizumab in the second line treatment. Now, occasionally, some patients with RAS wild-type colon cancer with left-sided uh, tumors who have not received anti-GFR in the first line and second line therapy will be uh, treated in the third line, and those patients will be treated with anti-HFR-based therapy, whether as monotherapy or in combination with chemotherapy. That is, in general, a, a, an overview of what is happening today. There are exceptions where we would be using fulfoxiri uh, in the first-line setting with bevacizumab. 
predominantly for downstaging or in patients where we want to take a very aggressive uh, measure in managing patients with very advanced disease and a high tumor burden. Uh, now, of course, there may be exceptions here and there, but I think that pretty much represents uh, a, a general overview of the treatment of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer who present to our clinic. I have to say that there will be exceptions that we will be talking about later on, but of course, there are patients who have HER2 amplification that have uh, certain types of RAS mutation that may dictate the treatment a little bit differently. But again, that's not in the first line and second line therapy. Now, the, the third line treatment of colorectal cancer has evolved. And on today's presentation, we will be discussing further where we are in, in the treatment of patients with advanced colorectal cancer and later lines of therapy. So here, uh, I would turn uh, the, the stage to my colleague, Dr. Dustin Deming. Uh, Dr. Deming, can you please provide a brief overview for later lines of therapy in patients with advanced metastatic colorectal cancer? So my pleasure. The, uh, the treatment options for patients with uh, treatment refractory uh, metastatic colorectal cancer have really um, increased in the last five years. And there are kind of two ways I like to group these therapies. Uh, first, the targeted uh, or the therapies that are for patients uh, with different molecular subtypes of colorectal cancer. So for example, patients with uh, mismatch repair deficient cancers, if they had not received um, immunotherapy would be candidates for this in the refractory setting, though that's becoming much less as we're using those treatments more often in earlier lines. Uh, similarly, patients with BRAF mutant uh, colorectal cancer, if they haven't received encorafenib with anti-EGFR therapy, would be candidates for this in the later line setting. Uh, HER2 amplified cancers would be candidates for trastuzumab tucatinib, trastuzumab pertuzumab, um, or trastuzumab deruxtecan. And um, now, um, recently added to the NCCN guidelines is also um, adagrasib or sutorasib with anti-EGFR therapy for the KRAS G12C um, mutant cancers. Additionally, um, many oncologists are uh, using uh, EGFR inhibition as a, a part of a retreatment strategy in the late-line setting. And uh, today we'll be discussing more of the kind of non-targeted um, treatment options, uh, specifically the use of uh, trifluoridine to piracil and bevacizumab um, uh, for quitinib, and then also um, uh, trifluoridine to piracil as a single agent or single agent regorafenib. Okay, uh, thank you very much for this overview. Uh, Dr. Saab, can you comment on the role of biomarker testing in determining patient eligibility for different therapies? And can you furthermore discuss if there is any role for circulating tumor DNA in molecular testing and managing these patients? Thank you, uh, Dr. Fakhi. So the uh, colorectal cancer has become quite interesting as we start, uh, you know, breaking down the disease into multiple uh, subgroups with uh, uh, with targetable alterations. Most of us now think about uh, every patient uh, having their tissue sent for uh, a full profile next generation sequencing. But at the least, the f the the three to four most important uh, uh, elements or alterations 
that we would be looking for, at least you know, when we're thinking about first-line treatment, are KRAS and RAS mutations, BRFE 600D mutations, HER2 amplifications, and of course, MSI, MMR, MSI, MMR status. Let me start with the straightforward one, MSI high uh, and, uh, and MMR would lead us down uh, the, uh, the pathway of, uh, of immune therapy in the first line. Uh, you know, data with pembrolizumab, we'll be hearing more about ipilimumab and nivolumab as well. Uh, and we know that these, these produce significant response, even potentially cures for patients. So that's important to have. The other elements, such as KRAS mutations and RAS mutations, BRFP600E mutations, and to some degree, HER2 amplifications, although the latter needs further validation, uh, all actually indicate a resistance uh, to EGFR inhibitors. And so they help us, at least in the first-line setting, to exclude patients from receiving EGFR inhibitors. Now, what we're seeing as well, as, as, uh, as will be discussed, that in the presence of of uh, agents targeting RAF, Encoraf uh, and Ipsituximab and others now moving to the first line uh, in clinical trials as well as uh, G12C uh, uh, in- inhibitors uh, that now are moving to th- from third line to second line, perhaps even first line uh, ultimately. And then studies also looking at HER2 target strategies in the first line. It becomes even more important to have these on hand, not just as negative predictor predictive biomarkers for EGFR inhibitors, but also positive predictors for certain therapies. In terms of circulating tumor DNA, they're playing a more and more important role in our clinics. Of course, they cannot replace tissue yet, but they do complement tissue. Every patient in my clinic would have uh, a a liquid biopsy, so circulating tumor DNA assessed and uh, tissue sent for NGS. The advantage with circulating tumor DNA with a high concordance rate uh, with uh, with tissue, uh, but also a faster processing time would give us uh, a clear answer for many patients, not all, but many patients uh, with uh, BRF mutations, RAS mutations, uh, or HER2 amplifications. So they can help in that sense. Even MSI high would be depictable on that. Great. Well, thank you uh, very much for this uh, great summary on where we are and where the future is going. I think what we've heard today from the experts uh, is that patients with uh, unresectable metastatic colorectal cancer has many treatment options, and the treatment options are directed by tumor genomics as well as the patient's characteristics. Relevant markers include MSI high, BRAF V600E, RAS mutations, HER2 amplifications, tumor mutation burden, and fusion, with the TMB being a biomarker of MSI high and POL-E pathogenic alterations. Uh, Recent guidelines have addressed sequencing, but however, there are still significant controversies as to what we do in the third-line setting and beyond. Third-line and later treatments for metastatic colorectal cancer does require a clear strategy to ensure that patients receive maximum benefit while maintaining quality of life. And that's something we will be touching on in our upcoming uh, presentations. Hello, everyone. I am Marwan Fakie from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center, Duarte, California. Uh, let's move on to the second presentation titled Moving the Needle in Advanced Colorectal Cancer Beyond Second Line, Emerging Data and Evolving Insights. Joining me in the discussion are my two esteemed colleagues, Dr. Tony Bikai-Saab from the Mayo Clinic, Phoenix, Arizona, and Dr. Dustin Deming 
from the University of Wisconsin Carbone Cancer Center in Wisconsin. Uh, Dr. Deming, uh, can you kindly comment on how is the overall survival in metastatic colorectal cancer improving, and what are some of the unmet needs today in metastatic colorectal cancer? I'd be happy to. Thank you. So there have been significant strides in advancing treatment options for patients uh, with metastatic colorectal cancer. And with these uh, new treatment options, this has resulted in improvements in survival for patients with this disease. Historically, patients with metastatic colorectal cancer treated with 5-FU um, only had a median survival of approximately 12 months. Now with um, better treatment options or additional treatment options, and better patient selection, we've made significant improvements in uh, survival. So for those patients with RAS, RAF, wild-type, left-sided uh, colon cancers, the median overall survival is now approaching over 40 months uh, for patients. Uh, however, uh, those uh, cancers not within that uh, particular subtype um, still have improved, but not to that degree, with median overall survival in the 30 to 36-month range. One of the clear unmet needs for metastatic colorectal cancer is more treatment options, especially in the treatment refractory later line setting when patients' uh, cancers have progressed on 5-FU, oxaliplatin, and arenatecan. Uh, and it's been exciting to see a lot of new research occurring in this specific setting for our patients. All right. Well, thank you for that introduction. Uh, let me just uh, walk you all through the recent data from this Sunlight clinical trial to address specifically this situation, third-line setting in patients who had progressed on prior oxaliplatin-based therapy, arenotecan-based therapy, fluoropyrimidine, and bevacizumab. Uh, the, the Sunlight clinical trial uh, is a phase three clinical trial that enrolled patients with metastatic colorectal cancer who had progressed following two prior treatment regimens, uh, including the drugs that I mentioned earlier. Those patients should have had an ECOG performance status of zero to one and a known RAS mutational status. Uh, there were stratifications on this study based on the geographic location of the enrollment and the uh, time of enrollment from initial diagnosis, less than 18 months versus more than 18 months, as well as RAS status. Patients were randomized to receive trifluoridine to Paracil alone or trifluoridine to Paracil plus bevacizumab. And the primary endpoint of this study was the overall survival of the patients enrolled on sunlight. Secondary endpoints included progression-free survival, disease control rate, overall response, safety profile, and uh, quality of life measured as time to deterioration and performance status, as well as looking at global quality of life. Uh, the, the sample size on this study was 490 patients, so quite powered. Patients were evaluated with imaging every eight weeks until progression and with follow-up for overall survival. So uh, here we see the uh, overall survival curves and the progression-free survival curves, and you can see a very distinct separation from early on in the progression-free survival as well as the overall survival. When we focus on the overall survival, you can see a hazard ratio for death of 0.61, meaning adding bevacizumab to trifluoridine to Paracil improved the overall survival by 39 or prolonged survival by 39%. Uh, the median overall survival on the Sunlight trial was 10.8 months for 
trifluoridine bevacizumab versus 7.5 months with trifluoridine alone. We see substantial improvements in progression-free survival as well. Here, the hazard ratio is 0.44, meaning adding bevacizumab to trifluoridine prolonged the time to progression or progression-free survival uh, by 56%. And you can see the median progression-free survival being 5.6 months with trifluoridine bevacizumab versus 2.4 months with trifluoridine. Interestingly here, the trifluoridine data is very much at, at par with what we had seen before on the recourse trial and what we know of about trifluoridine monotherapy, adding further validation to the representation of the population through sunlight here. Now, if you look at the safety of trifluoridine bevacizumab versus trifluoridine, uh, you can see that the regimens are quite comparable. However, there was a higher incidence of uh, neutropenia on trifluoridine bevacizumab, but this is really largely, largely related to the fact that patients who received bevacizumab trifluoridine remained on treatment on average three months longer almost uh, compared to trifluoridine alone. And we know that there is an element of cumulative uh, uh, neutropenia here uh, as you stay longer on trifluoridine. Uh, but what is important to mention is that the adverse events in general were acceptable in both arms uh, and the treatments were quite well tolerated. Now, notable on this study is that patients who received bevacizumab in combination with trifluoridine had a prolongation to time to deterioration in global health status, as you can see on this slide. The median time to deterioration in global health status was 8.5 months on the trifluoridine bevacizumab arm versus 4.7 months on the trifluoridine arm. Similar benefits were seen when uh, time to deterioration in ECOG performance status was evaluated on this study. So uh, I, I think the, the sunlight trial clearly shows that uh, trifluoridine bevacizumab uh, is a new standard of care in the third-line setting, but there are additional data from other agents in the third-line treatment or beyond in patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. And here I would like to turn uh, to, to my colleague, uh, Dr. Bikai Saab, and ask him uh, to comment on the Fresco phase three clinical trial. And, and we know that Fruquintinib has been recently approved uh, for third line and beyond in patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. So Dr. Saab, if you can take it from here, please. Yeah, no, thank you, Dr. Fakih. Yes, indeed, it's becoming quite a crowded uh, field in, in, in the refractory setting. And, you know, when we, when we, when we think about our patients with... Uh, actionable alterations in colorectal cancer were limited to 10-15% of the patients. For most others, at least for the, from the positive biomarker standpoint, well, for all others, we don't have much options, and we very quickly end up in, in a territory where we have to decide on uh, these uh, options, such as uh, TES-102, Vivacizumab, uh, Rigorafenib, and uh, the new kid on the block, as you mentioned, Frequentinib. Uh, Frequentinib is, is an interesting agent. It's an oral agent. F initially, was developed through a Fresco study, uh, a randomized study in, in China, that did show that Frequentinib was actually superior to placebo in the less refractory patient population uh, and, and is approved in China and now approved in the US based on Fresco 2. Fresco 2 uh, essentially uh, looked at a 2 to 1 randomization similar to all other studies in the setting with Frequentinib versus placebo. 
when uh, put to the, to the test, Roquentinib did show superiority versus placebo in a very refractory patient population, which included not just the usual standards, but also patients who progressed on either TAS-102 or regorafenib. In fact, 40% of the patients who received Roquentinib or placebo failed both TAS-102 and regorafenib. Uh, so the study showed superiority with overall survival and progression-free survival. The hazard ratios were pretty favorable, uh, 0.66 for overall survival and 0.32 for progression-free survivals at the median that translated to 7.4 versus 4.8 and then 3.7 versus 1.8 month. I find the progression-free survival curve very intriguing uh, since it essentially was the only uh, one with, with truly a good separation uh, in, in the refractory setting versus other studies in the same setting. Because it's a primarily VEGF receptor inhibitor, hypertension uh, was the most common toxicities at a high, uh, high level. You do see some head and foot syndrome reaction, but it's in a very small proportion of patients and even less so, more equal than grade three. Overall, relatively well tolerated. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Tony, for this summary. Um, uh, so let me summarize this presentation. I think... Uh, uh, for the past 10 years, uh, we have really been limited in the third-line treatment to two agents, rigorafenib monotherapy or trifluoridine monotherapy. And, and these have had uh, some impact uh, on overall survival, which was statistically significant, but arguably the benefits were uh, considered clinically somewhat slim. Uh, and, and therefore, this has remained an unmet need, and, and uh, we see now some improvements in the third-line treatment of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. In the Sunlight trial that we summarized, uh, the addition of bevacizumab to trifluoridine to parasol resulted in a longer progression-free survival and longer overall survival uh, compared to trifluoridine alone. Uh, and these patients uh, who benefited were both patients who were bevacizumab pre-exposed as well as patients who were bevacizumab naive. And hence, the combination of trifluoridine uh, plus bevacizumab has been recently FDA approved for the third-line treatment. Fresco 2, as summarized by my colleague, Dr. Saab, uh, shows that fruquitinib is an, is an option for patients who are presenting for third-line treatment and has resulted in a significant and clinically meaningful benefit in both progression-free survival and overall survival compared to placebo in patients with metastatic refractory colorectal cancer. Um, uh, therefore, both Sunlight and Fresco 2 provide supportive evidence for the integration of either trifluoridine, tapiracil, bevacizumab, or fruquintinib in later lines of treatment in metastatic colorectal cancer. Hello, everyone. Uh, I am Marwan Faki from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in Duarte, California. Let's move on to the third presentation titled Next in line, sharing expertise and experience in maximizing use of later lines of therapy for advanced colorectal cancer. Joining me in the discussion are my two esteemed colleagues, Dr. Tony Bikai Saab from the Mayo Clinic, Phoenix, Arizona, and Dr. Dustin Deming from the University of Wisconsin, the Carbone Cancer Center, Wisconsin. Uh, Dr. Bikai Saab, can you comment on factors influencing treatment choices in later lines of therapy in metastatic colorectal cancer? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Faki. Uh, thank you, Marwan. Uh, so there are a number of factors that would influence our treatment choices in later lines. Uh, you know, 
the medicine is certainly an oncology specifically uh, a lot of science but there's also quite a bit of art into it uh, and that's that's the beauty of our profession uh, but there are a number of characteristics we're going to be looking at and I think the most important one that relates to patient autonomy is uh, essentially a, 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 a conversation with the patient meeting the patient where they are at and uh, 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 making sure that we follow patient preference and their family preference. And a focus on quality of life becomes even more important. I mean, it's important across all lines of therapy, but it, it becomes even more important when we move to later lines of therapy uh, as patients tend to be uh, a little bit less performant. Um, you know, some, some may still be in pretty good shape, but most patients, you know, have gone through quite a bit of treatment, and, and at that time, their performance status is lesser, they've lost more weight, their appetite is probably a little bit more poor, they may be more symptomatic, and we have to make sure that we understand that in our discussions with the patients. The other element is, of course, the toxicity profile of the various agents. Uh, none of these agents come without uh, their toxicities, uh, and certainly they become amplified as the patient uh, becomes less less performant and 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 in the presence of prior treatment. So these are very important elements. The other elements are the typical elements uh, of age, uh, performance status, as we discussed. Molecular characteristics continue to be very important as we go down the line. Or one of you recently presented really pivotal data with a, a sotorasib, a G12C inhibitor. Uh, with cetuximab and patients who are more refractory, showing that in that small proportion of patients with G12C mutations, um, uh, that you can improve outcome versus you know the the agents we just discussed. That's a small proportion of patients, but that's a meaningful outcome. Uh, N-track fusions become relevant. The incredibly rare red fusions may become relevant as well, uh, and and certainly uh, others. So we 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 in those patients we we have to continue to think about potential molecular alterations and, and, and actionable alterations. And again, more important to all this remains quality of life, toxicity profile, age performance status. Thank you so much. Um, let me move on to Dr. Deming. Um, Dr. Deming, uh, what are some of the barriers you encounter in your own practice when considering later lines of therapy in patients with metastatic colorectal cancer? So when, when a patient presents in the um, treatment refractory later line setting, um, it's, it's a wide variety of how these patients come to us. Um, they, they can um, be very symptomatic from their disease. They can have rapid progression of their disease. Other patients actually are, are doing quite well and, and have the um, ability to undergo potentially several um, treatment options in that late line setting. And so um, we really have to personalize the, the treatment for that specific uh, patient in front of us. And if they are quite symptomatic from their disease or ha are undergoing rapid progression of their disease, that can often limit their performance status and, and limit the tolerability of that patient for um, treatment options. Uh, additionally, as we're thinking about treatments in the refractory setting, um, we do have targeted therapy options for, for many of our patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. And historically, um, a lot of molecular testing was being done in the, the late-line refractory setting. Uh, thankfully, that testing has now really moved up into the first-line setting uh, for the vast majority of patients making um, 
the information available for, for patients in the later line uh, setting. Um, also, there's in many indications uh, for, for patients even to go undergo retesting for patients in that later line setting to help us better think about those, those options. One of the major concerns for patients in that, that late line setting, though, is we now have, um, excitingly, oral options for patients, but that is met with significant um, issues, especially as it relates to um, insurance and, and co-pays uh, for those patients. And so um, it is quite common for us to um, have barriers to getting these patients drugs in a, a timely fashion um, as we have to go through insurance prior authorization procedures and often uh, medical assistance programs to help get the patients the drugs they, they need. Thank you so much. So um, with those barriers in mind and uh, knowing the data in the third line setting that, that we have gone through, uh, how, do you, um, how do you recommend treating your patients, Dr. Deming, now in the third line setting? So, so it's really exciting to now have options uh, for these patients and more options than we've ever had um, before. Uh, in the Sunlight study, the, the population of patients that were studied there is not typically as refractory as my patient population. So um, in that study, uh, not all of the patients had had prior bevacizumab or prior anti-EGFR therapy. Um, if eligible in, in my practice, um, they would have all had that prior to the use of um, therapies, but I do prefer uh, trifluridine to Puracil plus bevacizumab as my first line non-targeted um, refractory um, uh, combination uh, treatment. Um, the I, I see this as a significant advance for patients with, with only a modest increase in toxicities and, and financial costs for patients and with a significant improvement in PFS and OS. Um, I am also, though, very excited about the Frequitinib data, and in a very refractory patient population, um, we see significant benefit for those patients. So I tend to think about Frequitinib as my, my next line of therapy after uh, trifluridine to Piracil and Bevacizumab. Uh, Dr. Saab, now that you have treated a patient in the third-line setting with trifluridine and tepiracil and bevacizumab, uh, what would be your next treatment option? And how does rigorafenib or fruquitinib fit the treatment journey uh, in a patient at that point? Well, it's great to have options. and It's great to have uh, uh, more than one option for patients in the refractory setting as we get to this stage. Uh, so for a patient who failed uh, trifluridine, trifluoridine, antipyracil, and bevacizumab, uh, we have two options that remain, rigorafenib or frequentinib. Uh, they haven't been compared head-to-head. -head. Uh, they haven't been sequenced in, in, in studies except in Fresco 2, patients who received frequentinib or were randomized to frequentinib or placebo were uh, uh, exposed uh, uh, to either TAS-102 or rigorafenib, and, and, and about uh, 40 to 50% of them were exposed to both. So we have that data, and we know frequentinib retains its efficacy regardless of prior exposure to those two agents. And for that, um, at this point of time, I'm more comfortable with rigorafenib first, uh, following trifluoridine, tiparacil, and bevacizumab, and then frequentinib. And the way I would give rigorafenib would be with a dose-optimized strategy with 80 to 120 to 160, 
as tolerated, as previously published, and as is standard for most of our practices. Then frequentinib, uh, and you know, as few months from now, as we gain more and more experience with frequentinib in the clinic, I've had quite a bit of experience in, on clinical trials. But as we we start working with it in the clinic, you know, things may change. Uh, and we'll see where it goes from there. But at this point of time, it'll be TAS-102, BEVA, REGO, and then Frequent. Well, thank you so much for your insight, and uh, thank you all for your attention, and uh, we will close here uh, this third session. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.